Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. We are your co-hosts. And today we are excited to welcome Lori Draper to the studio as our guest. Lori, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Thanks. It's nice to be here. We want to quickly introduce Lori and then just jump into our discussion. Lori Draper has been serving as a member of the Relief Society General Advisory Council since 2018. Lori was born in Salt Lake City, and she and her husband Malcolm spent 25 years living in New York City where they raised their three children. Lori earned a master's degree in social work and has worked for the Church's Family Services Program both in New York City and Salt Lake City the past seven years and brings some great experience from that work to the council, which is great. So again, Lori, we're just excited to have you here and to be able to learn from you and your insights. Yes, thanks for joining us. For the first question, we wanted to talk a little bit about your experience living in New York City. And you shared with us that as a young mother, you were there through the September 11th terrorist attack and that that was a very formative experience for you and for your faith. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what it taught you about trusting in God? Yeah, definitely. We were living right in the heart of New York City. You know, our kids were young, we had a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old, and just doing what young families do. And I dropped my kids off at school and then went to meet with some other moms. We were going to talk about little playgroup things. And then one of the moms came in and said, wait, did you hear about the planes going into the towers? And I mean, I was in denial. I was like, no, no, that, that, no, that kind of thing doesn't happen. But sure enough, it had happened. And so we quickly mobilized, went and picked up our kids from school. We were all at different schools. We picked up our kids and went home. But, you know, my husband works, you know, at the time he was just three blocks away from the oh, site. Wow. And so I knew he was down there. And this was back in the day of flip phones. You know, we didn't have great cell reception. And, you know, but I tried and tried to call, couldn't get through. When I finally got home, I went right to the voicemail, the messages. The answering machine is what it used to, what we <laughs> right, used to have. Right. You know? So I looked, and sure enough, there was a message from him, and I was so relieved. And he said, "You know, Lori, I, I'm sure you've heard about the planes going into the towers, and you'd be worried. I wanted you to know I'm okay." And I thought, "Oh." Whew. And then I looked at what time his message came in, and I realized that his message he had called after the planes had hit, but before either of the towers had collapsed. Oh. And anybody who knows my husband knows that he's a helper knows that he's the kind of person that if there's a need, he's going to He would have stuck around and tried to help. Exactly. And so I thought, oh my gosh, is he okay? Did he go down there to try and help? And Mm -hmm. was he caught in that? Mm -hmm. And for the next several hours, I could not reach him. The phone lines weren't working, and I had my three kids there, and I was just glued to the TV. And it's all changing so fast. and Exactly. And all I could do was watch the news and watch the TV and to see. And people could call from outside, but we couldn't get to him. And so it was just this worry and this wonder, is he okay? And knowing that there were so many people who had lost their lives that day and knowing the tragedy and the scope of this was really overwhelming. And finally, later that afternoon, I actually got a call from his sister who was in Idaho. She was the first one who was able to get through to him. And she said, he's okay. He's safe. He's still in their building and he's staying there to help keep their services up and running so that their systems didn't crash. And she said, so he's all right. He's going to keep trying to reach you, but he wanted me to let you know he's okay. So that was a huge relief. 
But then there was still that fear because he was down there and he was so close. And we did finally connect later that night. And he called and he said, I'm staying down here. I have to keep cleaning out filters because there was so much dust. And he worked at a big computer center. And so he was trying to keep their systems Mm -hmm. functioning. And I was like, are you safe? Are you okay? And he said, all of our power's out, but, but I'm okay. And so I'm watching the TV. I felt like I was the person that had to relay information to him and make sure he was safe. And Mm -hmm. it was really chaotic and overwhelming. And for the next 48 hours or so, I was glued to the TV. I would go sleep fitfully for a few hours Mm -hmm. and then get up. It was really wearing Mm on All consuming. And so finally, the third morning when I got up, I just thought, I can't can't keep doing this. And I dropped to my knees and I prayed, you know, Heavenly Father, how how am I going to get through this? What am I supposed to do? And the very clear impression came, turn the TV off. And I was like, I can't do that. That's my connection. <laughs> yeah, That's my I lifeline. I need that information. Exactly. I have to know. And I have to let my husband know mm-hmm. if, if everything's okay. And the impression again, leave the TV off. So I did. I didn't turn the TV on that morning. And I got up and, you know, my kids had been living on fishy crackers and cereal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. It was not stellar parenting moments, but I was like. <laughs> You're I, kind of in survival I mode. I was in, absolutely in survival mode. And so I got up, I fixed breakfast, and we sat around the table, and we did normal family things. And I turned on music. I turned on uplifting, inspiring music and started listening to that instead and sat down and read books with my kids and did the kinds of things that we normally would do as Mm -hmm. a family. And there was such a shift in how I felt and peace. And part of that, when I'd had that impression, my thought was like, how am I going to know? What if we need to evacuate? I mean, at that point, I was thinking, right, anything could happen. Anything could happen. I thought, you know, the bridges were all closed. I thought, we're on an island here. What if I have Mm -hmm. to get my kids across the Hudson River into New Jersey? What am I going to do? And the Spirit, again, had taught me and said, I will tell you. I will tell you if you need to leave. I will tell you if you need to do something. And so it took a tremendous amount of faith and discipline to not turn the TV on, to not worry about that. And each night I would allow myself like five minutes. I would turn it on just to sort of see, you know, I just got, I have to check in, you know, mm-hmm. and then I would turn it back off. And it was really powerful, the change. Later that day, it was interesting because my mom called and she said, Lori, I was thinking maybe you should just not turn the TV on. And, I'm like, <laughs> and I laughed. I said, he got me. I listened. I got yeah, it. The message <laughs> came through. It came yeah. through, but I appreciated the backup that yeah. I got. Like he had sent. And so that experience taught me that through all of that chaos, that the voice I needed to listen to was the spirit. I was so focused on what I was hearing through the media, and they didn't have all the information. It turns into a loop, right? And you do get sucked in so easily. Pulled in and just watching the same footage over and over and over again. And once I turned that off and turned my attention to the things that I had control over and things that I could do something about, which was my kids and my Mm -hmm. family, oh, this feels so much better. This feels Mm -hmm. right, and it feels good. And Mm -hmm. I learned to not trust in the arm of flesh. I remember hearing people's stories and them talking about how they were in the towers and they were coming over the loudspeaker saying, stay where you are, it's safe, you're okay, don't, you don't need to evacuate. And I remember hearing people say, it's like, no, it's like I had this absolute impression, I need to get out. Yeah. And I thought, do we listen to man and the arm of flesh or do we trust in the Lord? And I've always loved Proverbs 3, 5, you know, that trust in the Lord with mm-hmm. all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. And I thought that is where safety lies. We don't know what's going to happen in the world. We don't know what's going to happen in our lives, but it's that learning to trust in him and to trust that he wants to be a part of our life. It was mm-hmm. a really powerful experience for mm-hmm. me. And I can't help but keep thinking of your kids and how scared they must have been too. They didn't have all that information, dad's but they could home. feel, yeah, yeah that mm-hmm. their dad's not home. They're mom is so stressed out. 
things are out of whack as far as their schedule and everything. And so I just think Heavenly Father was so aware of your needs, your family's needs. And so that's so neat that you were able to just follow that impression and see the change that yeah. it made in your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A pretty big lesson in trusting in that voice and those promptings. I just think of the counsel that we've received from President Nelson, which is that spiritual safety and survival comes when we are listening for and hearkening to that voice that we're being led by and guided by. So thank you for sharing that. You know, I think everyone feels a connection to that day and that event, but for you to actually be there and to be able to share what you experience is, is really interesting and valuable. Lori, as we talked, and as we talk with women on the podcast, it's just so inspiring for us to hear about the very different paths and journeys that Latter-day Saint women are led on, depending on their own unique life experiences and skills, but also their unique needs and desires. And you've shared with us that you decided to return to school to earn your master's degree in social work when your youngest son was finishing elementary school, so still had kids at home. However, you've said that initially returning to school brought a lot of panic and fear that although you felt the decision to return to school was right, you also felt this tremendous fear and inadequacy. Can you share more about how you worked through that fear and anxiety and the blessings that have come to your life through your education and career as a social worker? Yeah, definitely. You know, I had completed my undergraduate work in health promotion before I ever met my husband and had worked in the field doing counseling in a health setting where I Mm -hmm. would counsel patients in terms of things they could do to help prevent and and help with conditions that they had. But I quickly learned that their physical needs were so closely tied to emotional needs. And I wanted to get additional education. I wanted to learn more. To get at the root of these issues and challenges. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so I had decided that I I wanted to go on and get a degree, and it felt like social work seemed like the right fit for me. And so all of this was happening around the time that then I, I met my husband, and well, actually we'd been dating for a while, and then we got married, moved to New York, and shortly after we got settled and in everything, I started looking at schools and figuring out, okay, where can I get my master's? And about that time, I found I was pregnant. And, you know, it's interesting because when you're uh, working, you know, you get this thing called maternity leave and you get a break. But if you're a student, you don't have a break. Mm-hmm. As I weighed my options, I thought about it and I prayed about it. I really felt like I needed to put this on hold and focus on being a mom and mm-hmm. raising a family and that I could pursue that later. And, mm-hmm. and so that was the decision I made and I felt good about it and went about the next several years having kids and, and raising them. And then when my youngest, our youngest son was just finished elementary school, I kind of felt the nudging that, okay, you know, it's time. I need to do this now. I need to dust yeah. off those old plans and, mm-hmm. you know, start going again. And and I did, and I applied, and I got into a program, and, you know, everything going pretty smoothly, feeling okay about it. And then I, I remember the day that I got an email with the syllabuses for my classes and realized it had been several years since I had been a student and been in, in school. A I while. Not, it, yep. it was a completely different thing I was going to be doing. And I opened this email and I started looking at these syllabuses and I just freaked out. I just thought, what in the world was I thinking? I can't do this. I don't remember. They didn't have computers when I yeah, went to when school. Yeah, when you went to school. <laughs> Word processors were just coming out. I mean, I used this archaic thing called a typewriter. And it was the latest and greatest because it had self-correcting tape on it, you know? <laughs> and I felt like I was really with it at that point. And so now it was like, 
computers and it's technology. And I a don't— A lot to learn. So much to learn. And I was older and my brain wasn't as young and fresh. <laughs> I felt like I gave all my brain cells to my kids. I thought, I don't know <laughs> if I have enough left to do what it is that I need to do. And so I just felt so completely inadequate and overwhelmed and really had a panic attack. It was just this moment of, I don't think I can do this. And then I took, you know, a few deep breaths. And I kind of walked around the apartment to kind of settle myself down. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'll go to class the first day and I'll see. And if it's too much, I can drop a class. I don't have to take, you know, I was going to take two classes at the time. I don't have to take them both. I can just take one. I could, I'm mm-hmm. sure I could probably do one class if it's too much. Mm-hmm. So that kind of helped me settle down. And then that first day, lots of anxiety going into this. And uh, But I got there and as I sat in the classroom and I started to hear the professor start to talk. It was like I just relaxed. I thought, oh, yeah, I love learning. I forgot how much I like school. Oh, and that anxiety gradually shifted to excitement Mm -hmm. and and thinking, okay, this is going to be okay. I think I can do this. It's going to be all right. And that was the beginning of my journey. And I loved my classes. I loved the things I was learning because they tied so nicely with gospel principles and gospel Mm -hmm. truths. And I thought— It was just truth that you were learning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was truth. We talked about agency and self-determination and self-reliance. And I felt like social work was very much— a profession where I could mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. I thought, you know, that's the gospel. So it was a very good fit for me. And after I graduated, I started working with LDS Family Services. My bishop at the time was the counseling manager there in the New York office. And so when I was licensed, he said, hey, love. We need you. We need you. Exactly. (laughs) And so it was a really lovely fit. And I loved it because we could use a gospel lens as we worked with clients. You know, it was just such a beautiful match. And then when we moved to Utah four years ago, I was able to transfer and bring those skills, and you know, it was a seamless transfer. And you know, people would always ask me, it's like, well, is it different? Is it different, you know, working with people here than it was there? And I, I said, you know what? People have the same problems, whether yeah. they're in New York pretty similar, or Utah. Turns out. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. The same issues exist, and the difference is the office I go to, but really what I'm doing is very much the same. It's neat to hear about the satisfaction and enjoyment you found from this career choice and really through kind of pushing through those feelings of fear and inadequacy and stepping into it a little bit just helped calm your nerves. And it makes me think women may be in a variety of situations that bring on that fear and anxiety. For me, I just recently got a big calling, one that really overwhelms me and I can relate to. I remember opening up the handbook and looking over it and it was I can't do this. And I just had to turn it off and like finish crying in my car for a little while. (laughs) So I guess I would ask, whatever it is that women are faced with that brings on those feelings of inadequacy or fear or anxiety, what counsel would you have in taking those steps into the dark with faith when things seem very frightening and impossible? No, it's a great question. I think a couple of thoughts here. First is, I think of that expression, you know, how do you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time? And the scriptures by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. That's always been one of my favorite scriptures. I think that, that that's how we start is we identify like what's the first small step I need to take and then we take it. Mm-hmm. And then the next one, it's like when we look at— that brings at, confidence, right? Exactly. Each step, each success is like, I can do this. For me, it was like that. I just have to show up that first day. Mm-hmm. Just once I show up, it's like, Sit okay, in the seat and yeah. be a body there. It, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes that's what it is. It's like what is the first thing I have to do in order to start this journey and just mm-hmm. do that one step? Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't feel quite so overwhelming and quite Mm -hmm. so big. Then the second thing is I think that we have to learn to think about failure in a different way. 
One of the therapeutic modalities that I like to use with clients is called acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of the things that we do is we notice and we identify the unhelpful thoughts that come into play. Like, for instance, for me, when I was opened up the syllabuses and I was looking at that, I, all the thoughts were, you can't do this. You're not smart enough. You're too old. You're going to fail. And it was like putting that on repeat. And it was just over and over and over again. And as you can imagine, that's not very helpful. Not mm-hmm. helpful. Um, but that's what we do, right? You know, we go to those thoughts and it's like, and our, and our brain sort of sends this, this story and this narrative of like, you're going to fail. This is terrible. And so then that often freezes us or prevents us from taking that first step. So what we do is like, once we've identified and recognized that story that's playing in those thoughts, it's like asking that question. It's like, is that helpful? And it's important. We're not saying, you're not asking, is it true? Because I was old, and (laughs) there was no guarantee I was going to succeed, and I might have failed. So it's not, is that story true, but it's, is that story helpful? And generally, the answer is no. If I kind of jump to worst-case scenario, right? Yeah, absolutely. And when I find myself connected or hooked by those thoughts and that story, it's like all I want to do is run and hide or crawl on the bed and pull the covers up over Mm -hmm. my head, and neither of which is helpful in moving forward. So when we can kind of identify those thoughts and recognize it, the next step is just acknowledging they're there. It's like, oh, yeah, there's my brain telling me that story again, a story that I can't do this. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people will have success with challenging those thoughts. It's like, yes, you can do this. You're, you know, but I find that when I give myself that pep talk, it's like I can say the words, but I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, because my brain then comes in. It's like, yeah, but. Right. Um, and I think whenever we get into a debate with our brain, our brain wins. So rather than trying to change those thoughts per se, it's more of changing the relationship with those thoughts mm-hmm. and being able to say, okay, thank you, brain. I really appreciate you pointing that out. <laughs> Those are all really valid points, but that's not really helpful. So mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of just having some awareness. Exactly. But I'm going to turn my attention and turn my back on those thoughts. They can still be there. My brain can be chattering away, but I'm going to turn my back on it and then focus my attention on something that I do have control over, something I have power over, something that first step. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, thank you, brain, but I'm going to go step out the door and start walking to class. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, I'm going to do that. And my brain can keep going. It's like, thank you, brain. I hear you. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for bringing that up. Really good points. But I'm not going to get so pulled in and hooked by those thoughts that I can't function, that I can't do those steps. And it's normal for all of us. Our brains do that. It's like, and the reality is my brain was trying to protect me, right? It was trying to protect me from failure. It's guaranteed I would not fail any classes if I did not go and if I did not take them. Hmm. You know, if I drop them. <laughs> the it's, safest thing to do. Exactly. I will not fail. But I also won't progress. And so when I can recognize it, so those are the thoughts, those are the things that are coming up. But rather than being pulled in and hooked by them, I'm going to unhook. I'm going to thank you and then turn my attention in the direction that I can go. I really like that. Thank you for sharing. Because that happens, like Carly said, in so many circumstances. And so I love thinking, what can I do? Those Mm -hmm. little things to move forward. Thank you. I'm even thinking of women that are just struggling to go to church or to participate. Mm -hmm. And there are so many things pushing against them as to why they shouldn't go or shouldn't be there. And that's a very real battle that so many engage with too, I think. Absolutely. There are so many thoughts and worries and fears. And and then, you know, you throw into that mix anxiety and Mm -hmm. depression and mental health issues. And it's like, wow, I, I had a client recently, they've learned it's like depression is a liar. Because said when I'm in the throes of depression, I, I keep I have to remind myself that depression tells me it's never going to get better. It's hopeless. You're stuck in this. It's not going to change. She said, and, and it's a lie. Those are lies. And I have to remind mm-hmm. myself that it's not true. 
And, so interesting. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's like the power of those thoughts is really profound. And so when we can change our relationship to them so that they're no longer front and center, it's like taking them from being right on stage in front of us and kind of shrinking it down and letting it be a tiny thing on the side of the stage. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, I can't get rid of you because my brain just keeps coming up with them, but I can make them smaller and turn my focus to the things that matter to me and the things that I want to focus my attention on. It's really valuable. Thank you. Lori, we love to ask our guests what's on their minds and hearts. And you briefly shared with us in a call before this interview that you've recently been pondering the reality of opposition in our lives and how acknowledging the reality of the adversary can help us see more clearly Satan's tools and tactics in our lives. And so it just reminds me of the same conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe once we see what he's trying to do for us, we can kind of minimize what he's trying to tell us and then recognize why he's doing this. But can you just share more with us about the doctrine you've explored on this subject? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when I was younger, you know, a young adult, single and first married, I was really good about giving God the credit. Anything good that happened in my life, it's like, hey, thank you, Heavenly Father. Felt like it was a gift from Him. It was like I always acknowledged Him and felt like He was responsible for anything good happening in my life. I would thank Him for it. But things that didn't go well and things that that happened that were not great were all on me. It was like I blamed myself Mm -hmm. for everything, my failures, my weaknesses, my sins, things in the world, things other people did. It's like somehow I was responsible. It was just that blame game. And I see that a lot with women. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's my fault. I just blame myself for everything. You know, my kids are making bad choices. It's like, I'm a bad mom. You know, it's like everything comes back to it's all on me. And I felt very responsible for all of the bad stuff while gladly giving God the credit for the good. And then my husband had a very different approach. I I remember having a conversation with him and he said something like, I just felt like I was really worked on by Satan to be pulled into something. And I was like, this wasn't what he said, but what my brain translated to was, oh, the devil made me do it. And I was like, oh, well, that's convenient. So you just blame the devil for everything, you know, all, the, all bad the bad things. things. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't what he said, but it was like, because of my frame of reference, that's kind of what I came to. And so I mm. thought a lot about that. And I started thinking about it. I thought, well, okay, wait a second. What if the, you know, it's like, I know the devil's real, of course, but it's like I wasn't acknowledging the reality of the battle that we were in and that he was what just— if he has real influence? Exactly. And that was a real game changer for me. It helped me to kind of identify. It's like, it's not me against the world. It's like, I'm here and there's two opposing forces Mm -hmm, that are mm -hmm. vying for my attention and for my allegiance. And I thought, oh, suddenly it's like, so when things would happen, it's like, I could say, like, wait a second, I get to choose what's going on here. And, you know, Mm -hmm. one example is like family home evenings. Like many families, many of our family home meetings were the fight that began and ended with a prayer. You know, it was it was like it was always hard. It seemed like Monday nights were like, oh, okay, here it is. It's like we're gonna do this such a battle. Yes, it, exactly. It's like, and even though our kids loved it, it's like there was always some battle. There was always some fight. Something that made it feel like, why are we doing this again? Because it doesn't feel like we're having these lovely, happy experiences. It feels pretty, pretty negative. I remember one. Monday, as I was thinking towards the evening, thinking, okay, what are we going to do? Okay, how are we going to get through this? It's going to be so hard. And the thing that came into my mind was Joseph Smith and his first vision. And I felt like the Spirit was really teaching me in this moment. And the thing I recognized was like, well, before that first vision, of course, Satan worked really hard to stop that first prayer because he knew was quite how opposition. important it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he was like, I'm going to pull out all the stops to do what I can. This is not going to be easy for him, at least. And then I kind of had this realization. It's like, 
what if family home evening is really important? And what if it's not just that I'm failing as a mother trying to have effective family home evenings? What if Satan is actually a part of this actively working against your efforts? Exactly. Mm -hmm. That was exactly it. And that was so helpful to me because then all of a sudden it wasn't just like, I'm just a bad parent. It was, oh, I am fighting against this force, this evil, that when I acknowledge that, then it changes it. It's like, oh, no, you're not going to get me. No, nope. yes. I know that you're trying to get me all riled up and all upset with the kids. It's like, not going to happen. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's cool. And it really helped me change how I interacted and how those family home evenings went, even to the point that like, when Monday would come, it's like, okay, whose turn is it today? Who's going to be upset today? It's like, let's see. Oh, 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 looks like it's you. There we go. There it goes. It's like, and yep. we could kind of laugh about it. And then once we kind of recognized that and could do that, it changed the way that whole whole battle went because suddenly it's like, oh, I see what you're doing here. I see how you're trying to kind of come in and undermine us with this contention. It's like, yeah, okay, nice try. I appreciate it. You know, it's kind of like that thank you, your brain. It's like, all right, thanks, Satan. I appreciate it. Good one there. You know, nice effort, but no, we're going to go We're going to stick with this. We're going to stick with it. We're going to mm-hmm. do our thing. And the nature of those experiences really changed after that. Mm-hmm. So that was something that was really helpful to me to kind of understand and recognize. And then more recently, I've been thinking a lot about if we were to define his job title or, you know, his mission statement or his purpose statement, I always come back to Moses 139. Mm-hmm. Behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality to the life of men. But I like to personalize that and take out men and put my name in there. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of Lori or of Shailen or of Carly. It's like suddenly it's like, oh, wow, I'm his work. I'm who he cares about. I'm what he's all about. And that was really powerful to me. And then I thought, okay, so if that is God's mission statement, what about Satan? Does he have a mission the opposite. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, in Moses chapter 4, verse 4, I think it's defined. It says, you know, he became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men, or I would say to deceive or to blind Lori, mm-hmm. and to lead Lori captive at his will, even if she will not hearken unto my voice. Makes it much more real. Mm-hmm. It makes it very real. It's like, oh, so his job is to deceive, to blind, to captivate. Oh, suddenly it's like, that's helpful to be aware of that and be mindful that that's what he's about and that's what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the places that we see him doing this really effectively is like right in Moses chapter one, when Moses has this amazing interchange with God. God says, I am God and tells Moses who he is. You are my son. Mm-hmm. And I have a work for you to do. And I think, oh, again, personalizing that, Lori, you are my daughter, and I have a work for you to do. So powerful. Mm-hmm. Really powerful when we put our name in there, and suddenly it's like, oh, I have a mission. I have something that I need to be doing. And that really is powerful. But then a few verses later, Satan comes tempting him and, of course, says, Moses, son of man. And so right there, it's like you see, he's taken God out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Now, it's true. Moses was a son of man. He did have an earthly father. Mm -hmm. So it's not a full lie, but it's like he's trying to remove that truth. Diminishing, yeah. Diminishing who he he has been taught. And so I think that Satan does that with all of us. He wants us to forget who we are. He wants to minimize who we are. Because he knows that when we acknowledge and recognize that, hey, I am a daughter of God. I have heavenly parents who love me. I love the young women theme. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, that's truth. And when we remember that, I think that's why these young women stand up and recite this every week to get that in their head and their heart that this is who you are. Because when we remember who we are, it changes how we act and what we do. 
Just recently, our youngest son just graduated from college, got a new job, moved to another state. And going through this whole process, I mean, that's a lot of change, a lot of stress, a lot yeah. of anxiety. And, yes. and he was just so calm through it all. It was just like, how are you so calm? How are you not freaking You're out? I'm feeling stressed all the anxiety. for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you know what he said? He said, well, you know, I have great parents. And I know that you've got my back. I know if something really crazy happens, I know that I've got your support and your help. So it's like, I, I don't need to be stressed. And Good I, for I, him, I, man. I, I wish I could take on that I, attitude. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and I appreciated that. But then I thought, well, isn't that what happens when we remember that I have, I have great good, parents? I have great parents. I have great parents. And you better believe they've got my back. And oh, they love, love me more than anything. I thought, wow, that's really significant. That really changes things in a really powerful way. Wow. Thank you for teaching us all of that. That was awesome. Definitely. And I keep going back to when you shared the experience of the first vision and before Joseph had the vision of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, it was that very real, all-consuming influence of the adversary. And we don't always remember that when we're thinking about the first vision. And so I'm kind of trying to plug that into my own life, too, when I've had these incredible experiences. I've also felt that darkness, but I haven't always given it that attribution of the adversary, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to maybe stop me. And it just is really helpful when it's like some of this darkness, we're not doing anything wrong. It's not us. It's not our fault. It's this very real, very powerful influence. And so I just love that comparison that it's like we can choose and we have these heavenly parents who are actually supportive, yeah, (laughs) and that can help navigate these decisions. And Um, are working just as hard. Like if we recognize it. And much harder. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I just really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing all of those insights. And I was going to say, since we talked, Lori, before this conversation, I've been looking in the scriptures and even in the Bible dictionary under devil, and there's just a lot of really interesting things. It's kind of amazing how many scriptures there are that talk about this power and influence that the devil has. So I'd recommend that too to listeners to look at that and learn Mm -hmm. more about these roles and the mission and recognizing that in our lives. So thanks for pointing me in that direction. That was interesting. Well, no, and I think it's interesting too. It's like when we know about something, the more we learn, then it impacts our actions. It impacts what we do and how we perceive things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's things I'm not interested in. It's like, I don't know about that. I'm not interested in it. And it doesn't have an influence on my life. But when it's like I say, gosh, this is important to me. I want to understand his tactics. I want to understand what he does and what he does to me specifically. Mm -hmm. How his angles affect me, because it's going to be different for me than it might be for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that's really enlightening, I think. And we'd love to jump into that because we've discussed a few of the tactics that the adversary has used on you, you know, Mm -hmm. with distraction when you were living during the September 11 terrorist attacks, this feeling of fear and inadequacy and anxiety when you were returning to school. What are some of the other tactics that Satan commonly uses to work on women, especially Latter-day Saint women? I know you said we are all different and there are different things, but there's some commonalities and some things that we see both as Latter-day Saint women and I think women of faith generally. I think you're right. Absolutely. Um, In addition to, like, our divine identity and wanting us to forget that, which we've discussed, which I think is really important, he also works to divide and isolate us. If you think about the first and second commandments are to love God and to love one another. And so he works to undermine that. Mm -hmm. That connection. Exactly. That divine identity is like that separating us from God but then also separating us from each other. In my calling, I've had the opportunity to meet with and talk with a lot of ward and stake relief society presidencies. And always in those conversations, ask, what are the challenges that your sisters are facing? What are the things that you're seeing? And almost without exception, regardless of whether it's an older population, a younger population, a married population, a single population. Wherever they are in the world. Wherever they are, 
they say loneliness. Isn't that interesting that we're all dealing with this loneliness? It's a common experience. Very common experience. And if Satan can have us feel like I'm all alone, I'm alone in this journey, I don't have anyone, you know, and sometimes people are in families or in married relationships or in different, you know, it's like, and they still feel They still, still feel, feel that. alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so recognizing that and understanding it is really important. And there's so much research out there now in the world showing the impact of loneliness. It's, like a, it's a plague. It's a modern plague. And it impacts us physically as well as emotionally. And then I think about this marvelous blessing we have in the church called ministering. Isn't ministering an antidote to loneliness? Mm-hmm, you know, it provides definitely. this opportunity to for be able everyone. to connect. For everyone. Exactly. Both sides of the equation. So that's one of the things, I think, is that recognizing when we're being isolated and when we're being separated from mm-hmm. those around us and reaching out. And then I, I just think about we've been given this tool, ministering, which can allow us to make connections and to feel united with the sisters around us. And then I think of the tactics Satan uses to keep us from ministering. But these reasons that it's like, oh, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. This is out of my comfort zone. They're going to think that I'm weird if I show up at their house. You know, all of these things that, again, he's unleashing to prevent us from doing something that will bring us blessings. Exactly. So again, that's a point where you say, thank you, brain. I appreciate it. Those are all good points. Or thank you, Satan. I appreciate that. Those are all good points. But I'm going to go ahead and do this. Because I know it's going to make a difference. I know it's going to be, there's going to be something positive. For years and years, I would do ministry. I would go, and it was always hard. It was like, I don't want to go. I'm so busy. It was always like, and then never did I come away from a ministry visit feeling like, well, that was a waste of time. It was always like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that was really, Yes, like everyone was uplifted, right? Exactly. And so finally I've learned, it's like, okay. And I think that all of those thoughts and all of those feelings of like, oh, you know, I don't have time. I don't want to do this are all part of that adversary. He's part of preventing me, trying to keep me from connecting because he knows that that connection is part of that commandment and that when I keep the commandments, there's power that I get as a result of that and mm-hmm. strength that comes beyond my own. And keeping covenants too. Like that is a covenant Absolutely. to mourn and yeah. to comfort. And there's priesthood power that comes from that. There are blessings that come from that. And we're supported. I can't help. These scriptures just keep coming to mind. So I had to look them up, of course, <laughs> especially when you shared what God's vision is versus what Satan's vision is that you've seen in mm-hmm. Moses. There's two scriptures in Alma. They give examples of people who have followed God, people who have followed Satan, and you can do a side-by-side with them. So one of them is, ye see that God will support and keep and preserve us so long as we are faithful unto him. And the other one says, we see that the devil will not support his children, but doth speedily drag them down to hell. And I just think that is such a very clear comparison mm-hmm. that Heavenly Father supports us. He's not going to let us suffer. It's when we choose the adversary and he will not support us, but he'll drag mm-hmm. us down to hell. That's what they'll do. And so I just think of this concept of loneliness too. And we could never be lonely when we're connected to our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. When we really can feel their influence in our relationship with them, it can be something so real for us and we can feel so supported in our lives. And so I just think that that's such a beautiful concept. Thanks, Shaylin. Oh, yeah. That was great. (laughs) Any any other tactics that come to mind? I think of busyness. Yeah. No, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think, especially as women, like we get caught up in this perfectionism cycle and feeling like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we have to somehow earn heaven. We have to somehow prove our worth or prove that we're worthy of blessings. And then 
we either get stuck because we're afraid of failing and not and not working out, or we jump on the hamster wheel and we just go round and round and round and round and round. And it's <laughs> and like it doesn't ever end. And it doesn't end, and it doesn't really get us anywhere. And we just get tired and exhausted. And you know, if you just want to be building your cardio, that's great. <laughs> but if you're going for something more than <laughs> great that, then it's probably not going to be our best approach. And go back and I think about the Savior's example when he was on the earth. And I think about what we know of him in the scriptures. He walked everywhere. So, of course, he couldn't have covered as many miles as we can in a day in doing everything we do. It wasn't frantic. It was not frantic. In fact, it was the opposite of frantic. And here he taught the multitudes, but yet he ministered again and again and again to the individual. He focused on that person. And here there could be all these people, but he would have eye contact and this amazing moment with a woman who touches his robe. In all these circumstances, there was never a feeling of panic or, oh, I'm not going to get it all done. Or how am I going to, oh, where should I've I go? Only oh, got three I years. I got to finish this. <laughs> exactly. Or and thinking yet, of people outside of his immediate area. Sphere. You know, because I think that can be really overwhelming to yeah. us. Again, watching the news and just feeling so helpless. But he's such a good example of look around you, focus on Do who's those around small you. and simple yep. things in your sphere. Exactly. The things that you have control over and the things that you can do something about, focus on them. You know, we're all on our devices or on our phone. And I love Michelle Craig's talk about seeing people. Yes. And I think, okay, so... so. Gosh, if we put our phones away, if we look at people, if we look them in the eye. I lived in New York City for 25 years. People don't look each other in the eye there. It's like it's a threat almost. It's Uh like you focus where you're going. You do not look at people. Except I will say that after 9-11, that changed for a little bit. As you would walk down the street, people would look. And there would be this question in their eyes of like, are you okay? Are you okay? And yeah. and I even had many people as I would be walking to the store or something say, is everyone okay in your family? Wow. Is everyone all right? That never had happened before. Yeah. And it didn't last forever, but there was a connection that we felt because Some of vulnerability. The exactly. Yeah. Those are all great things to think about. Thank you so much. Just one other thought I had is that we tend to focus on our achievements and our accomplishments. And that's part of that perfection. It's like, oh, have I ticked all the boxes? Am I doing all the things? Am I, you know, when we look around and see what others are doing, it's like, oh, you know, comparing ourselves. It's like, well, they're doing this, so I should do this too. And I think one powerful talk that really impressed me, Elder Oaks talk in 2010 when he talked about the challenge to become. And I remember the first time I heard, and I've listened to it so many times since, and I go back to it because I think it's not about the accomplishments of the things that we're doing. It's about the person that we're becoming. Am I becoming like Christ? And that's helpful because sometimes the achievements and accomplishments that we want to make, you know, let's say we want to get married. It's like, that's not completely in my control. It's like, that involves another person. It's like, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, I can't just make that happen. Yeah. So I can work on becoming the kind of partner, the kind of person that I want to be. That is something I have control over. I do. You know, and it might be, it's like, I'm going to get this degree. And then COVID happens and all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's all these weird things. Now it's like, I'm not going to finish when I thought I would. Or, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. there's these, all these other factors that come into play that are outside our control. But I have the ability to decide, how do I want to show up in this experience? What kind of a person do I want to be as I go through this challenge or this circumstance? And that to me is powerful. It's like, okay, all right, this is tough. And sometimes we kick and we fight against all these things that we don't have control over. It's like, ah, (laughs) you know, it's like, I just don't like this. And you can like put all your energy into fighting it and being frustrated that it is the way it is. But the reality is that is the way it is. So what are you going to do and how are you going to respond? During this discussion, I can't help but think there's very obvious opposition that comes from Satan and his influence and his power. But we also have to acknowledge that opposition is just a part of life. 
all bad things that we experience don't necessarily come directly from Satan. And as Elder Renland recently taught in General Conference, which I just love his talk about unfairness, he just says mortal life is inherently unfair. And a lot of the challenges that we experience are simply natural consequences of being mortals living in a fallen world. So we would love to kind of shift that conversation a little bit and just ask you, Lori, how can we better cope with things outside of our control? And what power comes from accepting that life may not be as we planned or hoped? So we kind of talked about this a little bit, but one of the things that I like to have my clients do, and I always encourage people to do it, is just you get a piece of paper, you draw a big circle on it, and think about what are those things I have control over? And what are the things I don't have control over? And, and write them down. And there's something about seeing them in black and white and seeing, you know. so great to write something down. That helps me. <laughs> exactly. But all of the things that are outside your control, outside the circle. And the things you do have control over inside the circle. So when you do that, you can kind of look at it and see. And, and people then kind of realize it's like, wow, there's a lot of stuff I don't have control over. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff I can't do anything about. Other people, the past, the weather. Be specific about things in your personal life that are bothering you or are troubling you. Is it inside or outside your circle? Interesting. So first of all, just identifying and being able to be aware of noticing it's like, and so often, you know, when, when we're in a conversation, I'll say, okay, is that inside or outside your circle? Oh, it's outside my circle. Okay. Then we work on kind of accepting that I can't change that, but then coming back to how do I want to show up in this situation? What is it that I want to do that's going to reflect who I am as I deal with this person that's hard to deal with or as I deal with this situation that's hard to deal with? Mm-hmm. And I think that can be a really powerful exercise to consider and think about those things. I think that understanding that challenges and difficulties are part of the plan. God did not say, okay, you're going to go down and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. It's, you know, it's kind of like there's going to be some good times. It's that opposition again. There's going to be some good times and there's going to be some hard times. And that's the plan. That's the way it was intended to be. And mm-hmm. Jane Ken Lloyd-Jones has this quote that I've always really liked. He says, anyone who imagines that bliss is normal is going to waste a lot of time running around and shouting that he's been robbed. <laughs> the fact is that most putts don't drop. Most beef is tough. Most children grow up to be just people. Most successful marriages require a high degree of mutual toleration. Most jobs are more often dull than otherwise. He said, life is like an old-time rail journey. Delays, sidetracks, smoke, dust, cinders, and jolts, interspersed only occasionally by beautiful vistas and thrilling bursts of speed. The trick is to thank the Lord for letting you have the ride. It's such a beautiful way of of describing that. It's like, okay, this is a journey, and and I'm going to accept all of the bumps and things along the way and see what I can accomplish. I remember years ago, someone asked me what my five-year and my 10-year plan was. Mm -hmm. Where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And and I thought about it a lot because I thought, well, I don't really, I don't really have a specific place. You know, I, was yeah. like, I felt a little bit bad. It's like, huh? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I should know and I don't. <laughs> exactly. And then I realized what my plan was. And, you know, my response was, I hope that in five or in 10 years, I am where the Lord wants me to be because I'm doing the things that he wants me to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I had already learned that I had made plans that then the Lord had other plans for me. So I'd kind of stopped making plans in that way because I thought, okay, if my prayer can be, Heavenly Father, where do you want me to be? Where do you want me to be and what do you want me to do and how do you want me to show up in this calling or in this dynamic with this person or in this situation? Then I'm going to feel like, okay, 
I think I'm doing what God wants me to do. And I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Right where I need to be. Right where I need to be. And, you know, that has been a helpful thing to me as things show up and as as plans happen that you're not expecting. I mean, we we have a daughter who is on the autism spectrum. It's like, that wasn't part of my plan. You know, I didn't stand in that line in heaven, but yet somehow that's what I was blessed with. And I've learned a tremendous amount because of that experience. Mm -hmm. And so when I can say, all right, you know, Heavenly Father, this is what I've got. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this? Mm-hmm. Well, and just that, that you know, you go back to Heavenly Father kind of saying, you know, there's going to be good, there's going to be bad, that that was part of the plan because if it was all fun, if it was all thrilling, I don't know that we would come away from this experience growing and being who we need to be. And I also think people say this all the time and we talk about this all the time, but it is really hard when you get on your phone and look on social media and all you see are those thrilling bursts of speed. Mm. And it makes you think that every day of my life should be this fun, thrilling burst of speed and it's not. (laughs) And I think that's some good perspective that how can I better just enjoy and be grateful for this ride and this opportunity, the ups and the downs. Easier said than done, of course, but it helps to have that perspective, I think. And recognizing that all of the emotions that we have are part of the human experience. Of course, I'd like to feel happy. But even the Savior wept. I love the description when he went to Mary and Martha. And here they are. You know, they've lost their brother. And yet he knows. He knows that it's all going to be okay. Mm -hmm. He knows that, hey, I'm going to heal. You know, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's all going to be okay. But he wept. He was with them. He felt that emotion. He felt that with them. He experienced that emotion. I don't think it was just like, okay, I'll cry with you to make you feel better. It's like, I think he felt Mm. they were feeling. It's like, okay, so maybe it's okay for me to feel other emotions. And maybe I can learn from those emotions. They can teach me things about other people, about myself. And when I can have that perspective, it's like I could be curious about, oh, I'm noticing I'm feeling something. What is it I'm feeling? We judge our feelings a lot. I always say we have feelings about our feelings. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm feeling oh, something. It's like, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. It's wrong that yes. I feel this way. It's like, oh, you know, let's just pull all that away and just sit with, okay, this is what I'm feeling. Wow. I'm so curious. I wonder what that feeling is about. I wonder what that feeling is, is teaching me. Hmm, is there something I need to do? Is this about something inside my circle or outside my circle? Okay. And that's really powerful, I think, to kind of be friends with those emotions and allow them to be a part of our experience. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Thank you. That is great counsel. Thank you. Is there anything more, Lori, that you'd like to share with the women of the church or the listeners of the podcast? The thought that I've had is I want them to know that God loves them. I think that is the most important and powerful knowledge that when we have that, it's like it changes how we act. Throughout the years and the history of the church, there have been lots of challenging things that have come up, and a lot of people have left the church because of them. Plural marriage and blacks in the priesthood and LGBTQ issues and women's roles and DNA studies and the first vision and all of these really hard topics. And I know people personally who have left the church as a result of those kinds of things. It's like mm-hmm. uh, Those you know, questions and those concerns. Questions. Exactly. And the thing that keeps me here is— Remembering that, like Nephi, you know, in 1 Nephi 11, 17, he says, I know that God loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. I think, okay, if I can come back to that truth that God loves me and he loves you and he loves each of us, then if I'm feeling unloved by him, if I'm feeling, you know, something's rubbing me the wrong way or not working for me, it's probably because I'm not understanding it fully. Because I think of it as like being a big puzzle. It's like we're putting together the puzzle, and it's like I get a little piece, and I think, oh, cool, I got this. But there's all these other pieces that I don't have yet, mm-hmm. and it's okay. It's a big puzzle, and mm-hmm. it takes a long time to put together. Mm-hmm. But I know the general theme of the puzzle is God loves his children. 
Mm-hmm. And so if love is the theme, then it's like, okay, if this part here doesn't look very loving, there's some pieces here that are missing. That right. are missing. Yeah. So that it's would part be— of that nevertheless. Nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That would be my hope, is that women understand and know that God loves them. Thank you. You've shared so much with us, and we really appreciate you being so open about your experiences and sharing all of these thoughts. And from your profession. I'm going to go home and work on my circle inside (laughs) and outside my control. (laughs) So thanks for joining us today, Lori. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. As a reminder, we have new episodes released every week. We hope you'll continue to tune in and share these episodes with your friends and family members. We've been so grateful to hear from so many listeners via email and on Apple Podcast reviews. So thank you. We read and appreciate every one of them. And we hope that you'll continue to share your thoughts and feedback. We love hearing from you. Feel free to contact us at podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org with any suggestions or ideas. And as you share these episodes, we want to make sure you are aware that the podcast is available just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. In addition to being on the church's website, it's on the Gospel Library app, Saints Channel mobile app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere. So tune in, subscribe, and continue to share these voices and stories of women of faith with your friends and family. We'd also like to thank our wonderful editor, Kurt Dahl, and our producer, Matthew Mangum, and the many others who support this podcast. Until next week, I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.